Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. All right, Joe, so with the 4th of July holiday, and we'll get to that in a minute, we didn't get a chance to talk about the Trump family's excellent adventure, part two, the G20 and North Korea. And I know you had some thoughts on both. So let's start with the Group of 20 Economic Summit in Tokyo. The U.S. delegation included Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. So to start, Joe, what is the G20 and why does it matter? Well, the G20 is an extended group of the top 20 economies in the world who get together uh, once a year uh, at, with their heads of state uh, to talk through you know, economic issues, trade issues. It's one of those meetings that's high on ceremony, but also because the leaders are together through a series of bilateral and trilateral meetings, a lot of stuff gets done. It's, it is a chance for the U.S. president to demonstrate our economic leadership in the world. And it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but it's one of the critical meetings uh, that a president uh, needs to do every year. One of the most peculiar parts of this G20 uh, meeting, though, was the president did seem to uh, be the star of the program. He brought a co-star with him, and it was his daughter, Ivanka Trump. Without any particular role, she just kept showing up at meetings and she kept interjecting herself into world leaders' conversations. The internet was alight with her trying to butt into a conversation with Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, and and some others. And the look on their face told the story of, what are you doing here and why do we have to listen to you? You had pictures of uh, Trump surrounded by world leaders with his daughter sitting next to him. Uh, the G20 is not supposed to be take your children to work day, but that's what it felt like. And it's just very, I think, telling of how Trump views the presidency. He views it as an extension of running the Trump organization, which is a family company. And he views the, he views the presidency as a family company And he views not his cabinet that is confirmed by the Senate as the important people. He views the people in his family as the most important people. And that's much more akin to an authoritarian state and a monarchy. And I think it was hard to miss on this trip. Uh, it's, It's completely inappropriate for Ivanka Trump, based on her lack of experience, And based on the fact that her only relevance to any of this is that she's related to the president to play this prominent uh, prominent of a role. Several people have asked me, um, you know, what would it be like if Chelsea Clinton had done this during the Clinton administration uh, or, um, you know, if Hillary had become president, probably much more relevant uh, given, given her age. And the fact of the matter is the right wing and conservatives would have exploded over this uh, as it being inappropriate. It was just a bad look for the country. And one of the most important things to look at 
when the president's at these multilateral meetings is the expression on the face of the other world leaders who still are sitting there thinking, how did this guy get there? And who, what, what is Ivanka doing on stage here with us? It's a bad look. Now, one aspect of these summits that you referred to, bilats, are where these world leaders have one-on-one meetings with each other's bilateral meetings, in addition to all the conferences and discussions that happen. And here, President Trump had a one-on-one in Tokyo with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and the subjects of fake news and Russian interference in the U.S. election came up. What happened and what was the reaction back home in the U.S.? The president was asked very directly, are are you going to bring up Russian meddling? And by the way, I hate the word meddling. It sounds like someone breaking into someone's conversation and being rude. It's an attack on our democracy. It's not meddling. But for whatever reason, we've settled on that word. Someone asked uh, a reporter, are you going to bring up uh, uh, meddling in the election and ask him not to do it? And Trump, with a big smile on his face, turned to Putin and said, please don't meddle in our elections, belittling any concern about the all-out attack uh, that had taken place on our democracy. What it shows is that no matter how many times the intelligence services tell him uh, how important and how aggressive the Russian attack was, It doesn't matter what's in the Mueller report, which I am certain he hasn't read. He can't take this seriously. And the fact that he can't take it seriously, and my guess is because he's um, insecure about the legitimacy of his own election, that we are never going to react as a country the way we should in an aggressive manner to combat this attack on our democracy. I think it's one of two things going forward. One is he doesn't want people to think he wasn't legitimately elected, so he just won't deal with it. Or two, he actively wants Russia to help him again in 2020. He thinks he needs the help. He knows that Russia helped him become president, and he wants it to go on again the next time. He doesn't want to do anything to undermine it. It's kind of a devil's choice. Neither one of them is good. Now, Saudi Arabia is part of the G20, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman MBS, as he's referred to, represented his country at the summit. It has been reported that the U.S. intelligence community, the CIA in particular, has determined with a high degree of confidence that the crown prince directly ordered the brutal murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But that didn't stop President Trump from calling MBS a, quote, good friend and posing for pictures with him. All of this is just One year after the Capitol Gazette murders happened where five newspaper employees were shot and killed in Maryland. So, Joe, how did that go over both in the U.S. and around the world? In the U.S., it went over the way you would expect it to. Thirty five to 40 percent of the country praised the president uh, for being for the authoritarian, the strong, the dictator. Uh, these people are going to uh, react positively to whatever Trump is. The rest of the country, I think, was aghast. When you look at that whole trip, he did two things. One is insulted our allies, uh, Germany, Japan, did everything he could to belittle the people who share our values, share the idea of liberal Western democracy, even if uh, Donald Trump thinks it's about California liberals and doesn't 
understand it, and praising dictators. Um, and it's becoming increasingly clear that this isn't um, just an infatuation with people who have a lot of power. It is the way he thinks the world should work. And that should be very scary to people at home. For instance, he jokes about his third and fourth terms. Those jokes aren't really jokes. He doesn't view um, our country and our system of government the same way that most Americans do as a, you know, organic democracy. He views it as more like the Trump organization where someone is in control of everything and anyone in the way has to be pushed aside. And it really was striking uh, during the trip that he refused to take on MBS over the killing of um, the journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi. He refused to take on Vladimir Putin for an attack on the United States. I mean, yeah, I, let me just say that again. Russia attacked the United States, and Trump's response was to laugh about it. It tells you everything you need about who Trump is. The problem is people have gotten numb to it. There's nothing new about it. And I think, you know, I was having this conversation uh, earlier in the week with Brian Stelter uh, of CNN, their media reporter. And, you know, and I agree with him where he talks about uh, the press now grades Trump on a curve. They don't think he's very smart. So when he makes a mistake, it's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. To me, it's unnerving uh, that, you know, at a international summit, the G20 in Osaka, uh, that the president would side and laud dictators over the people who share our values, which to me tells me he doesn't share our values. He shares the values of of Vladimir Putin and the Saudi government. All right. So after the G20 summit, it was off to the Korean Peninsula for some photo op diplomacy. And Donald Trump took a few steps over the border into North Korea. So, Joe, explain what happened and how the press covered it. Let's take one step back. I think what we've seen is Donald Trump views diplomacy as a way to present himself in a positive light, as opposed to using diplomacy to advance America's interests. Uh, the uh, conventional wisdom, and, and, and trust me, conventional wisdom is not always right, but conventional wisdom on North Korea for the last 30 years is they need to earn levels of legitimacy, and you don't rush into a state visit or a, you know, one-on-one -on -one president to leader meeting because that gives them the legitimacy that they're looking for. Well, Trump has now done it twice. And each of them, the North Koreans have come out with tangible results and the Americans have come up with nothing. Uh, and after uh, the Vietnam summit, people thought maybe these talks are dead. Trump, the showman, when he was in South Korea, and my guess is he came up with this idea on his own, thought, well, I can go to the DMZ and I can say hello to my good friend who sends me love letters, Chairman Kim, and I can go into North Korea. And that's what he did. And there's no doubt that it was historic. No president, um, sitting American president, has ever set foot uh, in North Korea. It's not a question, though, of historic as no one's ever done it before. There's a reason no one's ever done it before. And the press 
drooled all over themselves in presenting this as some historic moment in our history when they should have just said this hasn't happened before and gotten into the context of whether it was a good thing or it was a bad thing. Trump understands um, implicitly that the press will often mistake motion and activity for progress. Something new happening as opposed to something important happening. So let's review the bidding. After three summits, the U.S. policy now, according to the New York Times, is that we're not going to ask North Korea to denuclearize. We're going to do a sort of tacit freeze, which is we're going to accept that they're a nuclear power and work with them on making sure uh, that they use that power responsibly. That's an enormous concession to North Korea and it's the exact opposite position that Trump took at the beginning of his administration. Let's look at what North Korea has gotten out of this. Chairman Kim started this as being seen as a recluse, uh, someone who was weird and strange, who had his half-brother killed, has been described as a murderous thug. All of a sudden, he's now on the same level as the president of the United States. He got the president of the United States to come to North Korea. He got the president of the United States to fly halfway around the world to Singapore, to Vietnam. And what has he given up? Absolutely nothing. Press can cover this as the U.S. keeps getting taken, or they can be taken in by the pictures of, well, look at the president walking in to North Korea, and no one's done that before. And there's a kind of shocking lack of context uh, to how um, that visit was reported. My guess is over time, uh, this will settle back you know, into uh, closer to reality, but it it disservice to uh, the entire process when the guy who's viewing this as a reality show is rewarded for doing something that isn't in our interest. Now, we did get some press secretary news. It was reported that the new press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, was involved in a scuffle with the North Korean security officers. That's a pretty rough first week on the job. What did you make of that reporting? Having having been in those situations, they happen uh, way more often than you might think, um, particularly in authoritarian states that have state-run media, state-run television where if the North Korean handlers said to the media, everyone stand on one foot and start barking, they would. I don't think the American press would would quite do that. Um, It is part of the press secretary's job and and the press secretary's team to make sure that the American press gets access. And particularly on things that are done on the spur of the moment, it is not choreographed. So I think she got a taste of a piece of the job that I know full well, I remember a lot of scrums where, you know, you're pushing back on security people and you're trying to help a cameraman come in. And the next thing you know, the camera hits you in the head and you're like seeing stars. But that's that's part of the job. And you do it not just because of the principle of the American press being there. It's because the meeting's important and you want that meeting to be reported on. Um, so, again, I think she did the right thing here. People who question her motives are, you know, I think wasting time. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what her motives is. That's what her job is, and she did her job on that day. I don't think it answers the the broader question of 
how she'll do as the new press secretary. I'm looking a lot closer at, are we going to see the daily press briefings back? Are we going to see transparency? Are we going to see honesty uh, coming out of the White House? That's way more important than, you know, pushing past uh, some North Korean security guards. And Joe, last week, we also got word from a congressional group that went down to the border to visit CBP facilities, including Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, who said on Twitter that uh, officers were keeping women in cells with no water and had told them to drink out of the toilets. What do you make of what's going on at the border this week? Listen, what's been going on at the border this week, last week, and now for many months is is a national and an international uh, shame. Uh, It's just shame on this country for allowing this to happen. Laura Bush last week, who's not one to make political uh, statements at all, called separating children from their parents immoral. A federal judge had to order the Custom and Borders Patrol to let health experts in to these detention centers. What kind of country, what kind of president needs a federal judge to say that children should get access to health care while they're being detained. What kind of president, what kind of country says children should drink out of a toilet bowl? What kind of a president, what kind of a country says they don't need soap or toothpaste or any or or a bed to sleep on? This is the absolute sickness of of Donald Trump. His view is that this is all good because this will deter people who are living a life where they're under attack and subject to violence in their home countries in Central America, it will deter them from coming to the United States. And there's an institutional racism here, and we, we shouldn't cover this up in some way. He views people who are black and people who are brown as less human than people who are white. Only that kind of person could look at what happened in Charlottesville and say they were good people on both sides, when one side was white supremacists and and neo-Nazis. And this isn't America. This is not the America that people, even those who voted for him, if they spent some time and thought about it, uh, that, that people understand to be what we're about. Uh, and I think this will be, in many ways, uh, Trump's most enduring legacy, the treatment of people uh, at the border. Many of us may be wrong, and the the way he's treating people may get him reelected, but I can tell you that it's the most un-American thing I've seen in my lifetime. It's the most immoral thing I've seen in, in my lifetime. There's just no bottom to the hideous, uh, uh, soulless, amoral behavior of this president that allows this to continue and needs a federal judge to step in. And this isn't the first time. We've had dozens of cases of judges intervening in this administration, telling them to stop doing what they're doing, from the Muslim ban to what's going on on the border. And again, the, the sad part is people are starting to get used to it. And no one should get used to this. No one should get used to what's going on at the border. It makes me sick. All right. And finally, Joe, you've talked about the 4th of July on previous episodes. And in the past, presidents have celebrated in many different ways. Some have gone on vacation. 
Some have spent it with the troops or on historic battlefields or monuments, and others have presided over naturalization ceremonies. But one thing they haven't done is turn the national celebration into a political event. Joe, what did you make of how President Trump spent the 4th of July last week? Just when I think I can't get more pissed off that Donald Trump is our president, uh, he does uh, something like this. Fourth of July is an event for every American, not not the people who think that make America great hats are the, the a fashion statement, um, not just the people who voted for Donald Trump, not the VIPs who can get the tickets, not the donors. And I think it's just a total perversion of what the 4th of July is supposed to be to turn it into something political. We all know that Trump was taken by the Bastille Day event when he was in Paris, when uh, the French down the Champs-Élysées had, you know, tanks and military hardware and just says a lot about Trump. Um, Countries like Russia on May Day, countries like France on uh, Bastille Day, they show off their military hardware out of insecurity, out of trying to show the world and their people how strong they are. America doesn't need to do that. It's just the opposite. We don't have to show the hardware. People know how strong we are. We don't have to have tanks and military aircraft going down the street and showing off hardware because people do know what our strength is and people do know what we're capable of. And it's a sign of weakness that Trump is so attracted to this. And he's taken a holiday that 100% of America loved, I think. Maybe it was 99%. Maybe there's some people who don't like it. And he's turned it into a day that 60% of the country will choose overtly to celebrate in a way different from him. I went to college in Washington, D.C. from the late 1970s for a decade, always went down to the mall on the 4th of July, and it was the most apolitical thing you could do. People just went to have fun. It wasn't, you were not for a candidate against a candidate. It was just about celebrating what this country is about. And it's just the latest way that Donald Trump has perverted American values and tried to shape them towards his values, which are not American values. We've talked about this before, but this one, to coin a phrase, got right up my nose. How did President Clinton celebrate the holiday when you were there in the White House? Most of the time, he invited staff and their families and members of Congress and friends to the White House. The the White House South Lawn is a wonderful place to watch the fireworks, and he would mingle with, with all these people. And the most important thing was he wouldn't do anything that made it harder to enjoy what was going on on the mall that the general public could enjoy. What Trump did was by shutting down a lot of things, he precluded, and I don't know how to quantify it, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans from going and being on the mall to celebrate this very special day for being an American. And he did it in service of himself. We've talked about a lot of things uh, in the last couple of weeks. We've talked a lot of things in this conversation. 
But that is the theme. If you want to know what the Trump doctrine is, it's in service of Donald Trump, uh, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's domestic policy, uh, whether it's the symbolism uh, and using the bully pulpit. It's always about in service of him, not about in service of our country. And I think that's one of the most depressing things about um, knowing that uh, he will be our president for another uh, short time and he may get reelected. I mean, you know, who the hell really knows what's going to happen? And there's really hasn't been a president in our history. We've had corrupt presidents. Um, we've had dishonest presidents before. But I don't know that we've ever had a president who didn't, didn't necessarily love his country, who only loved himself. Uh, and that's what we have right now. Uh, he doesn't really care about the country. He doesn't really care about the values. He doesn't share the values. He cares about himself. He cares about his family. He cares about how he looks and how what people think of him. And, um, you know, it's why he'll go down as the worst president uh, in the history of our country. Well, in service to our audience, we're going to keep it short this week. That's all we've got. And until next week, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Katie. And now, Katie's final word. Last week, Gold Star parent Kazir Khan welcomed new citizens to this country as he delivered the keynote address in Charlottesville, Virginia, at Monticello's annual Independence Day celebration and naturalization ceremony. Khan and his wife Gazla moved to the United States in 1980 and became citizens six years later. In 2004, their son, U.S. Army Captain Humayun Khan, was killed while serving in Iraq. So this week, we give proud American and gold star parent Kazir Khan the final word. I'm a patriotic immigrant American. I am a Muslim also, but being Muslim is circumstantial to my calling. I am here to remind all of us the holy maxims of enlightenment and reason that we all can agree provide for a path to greater social justice and here I pay tribute to the hard work and sacrifices of our civil rights leaders to uplift all of us in this blessed nation. So much more still remains to be done. Our neighbor is not to blame. Her hand is what we hold in facing the challenges of ever-changing world. I remind us the quote from Reagan's farewell address to the nation. I remember standing up in front of the television at home with the same awe I felt when I first read the Declaration of Independence in 1972, but this was 1989. Reagan had completed his second term, and in his farewell speech he said, I have spoken of the shining city all my political life but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it, but in my mind it was a tall, proud city built on rocks, stronger than oceans, wind-swept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors 
and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That is how I saw it. That is how I saw it and see it still, Reagan said. Our, your and mine story is like that of John Winthrop, an early pilgrim seeking freedom of conscience and choice and finding the shining city on the hill. Now that shining city needs you and me and our voice so that it continue to be a beacon for all free-minded people in the world. Let's stand in solidarity as Americans, soon to be newly minted, like you and myself and those who came long before, to tell the world we still believe in America. Yes, we still believe in America. We believe in equal dignity. We believe in equal dignity as enshrined in our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. We believe in the dignity of asylum seekers, children separated from family and caged at our border, which reminds us of the concentration camps of the Second World War. We join the courageous voice of our asylum officers. That current program is fundamentally contrary to the moral fabric of our nation, our nation of immigrants. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.